Hello and welcome to the uh, review podcast for the American Revolution, French Revolutions, and Haitian and Latin American Revolutions. So make sure you have your study guide in front of you and let's go ahead and get started. All right, beginning with the American Revolution. First, I would encourage you to pay some particular potential, uh, attention to the guiding questions here. Um, one or two of those questions looks like they might be excellent for short answer or essay questions. Um, beyond that, in terms of what I would like you to know for the American Revolution, please make sure that you understand both the causes and the effects of the revolution. So. Let's go ahead and set the stage. Um, we're talking uh, the 1770s. Um, in terms of the American colonies, for the most part, they had largely been left alone for nearly uh, 20 or 30 years um, at this point. This is largely because of the fact that England has been involved in, initially it had its own uh, civil war, it had its restoration period, uh, the, the glorious revolution, um, followed by a, a period of political instability and then uh, kind of a restoration. So um, England had not been paying direct attention to its American colonies um, and therefore had essentially left America, uh, the American colonies to fend for themselves. Um, this resulted in the establishment of a relatively robust uh, democratic tradition, at least on the local governmental uh, level. Well, uh, especially in the Northeast, in what we consider New England, particularly in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, um, particularly around the Bostonian area. Um, this uh, region had a very strong uh, democratic tradition and relied very little on uh, Great Britain in general. Um, there were royal governors, however, colonial legislatures had the power to reduce the salary of the royal governors and therefore royal governors very rarely enforced British law. Now, most of the laws that had to uh, that had been enforced against, or had not been enforced, excuse me, against the American colonists had to do with trade. Remember, we're dealing with a mercantilist system here. Mercantilism is, of course, the belief that uh, a nation's power is entirely dependent on how much wealth it has. Therefore, a mercantile system of trade should allow the mother country, in this case Great Britain, to gain uh, wealth at the expense of her colonies. In this case, we're talking about uh, the American colonies. Now, um, some of the prohibitions uh, that were placed on American colonists were trade prohibitions. Um, they were not allowed to trade with any nation other than Great Britain. This ensured that all of the colonists' money is going to benefit, benefit excuse me, Great Britain. Um, and this means that uh, should anyone from, say, the Netherlands or France or Spain wish to trade with American colonists, they are supposed to uh, refuse to do so. However, um, many American merchants, particularly in the New England area where uh, there's a lot of emphasis on trade, uh, sea trade, um, and fishing, and people have access to many boats, there is a very robust uh, smuggling community in this area. Um, and everyone knows it's going on. It's not a secretive operation. We're not talking about piracy here. Um, but uh, it, it definitely was against the law. Now, over in Europe, uh, England and France have been involved in a skirmish called the Seven Year War. As one might imagine, it lasts 
seven years. Um, the Seven Years' War spills over into these two countries' respective colonies. Uh, the American colonies, uh, the New England uh, and, and to the southern colonies, uh, and the French New World colonies, mostly in uh, what is modern-day Canada. Um, so there were uh, colonial forces, uh, the, excuse me, there were French forces on the ground in the New World as well as British forces. Now, the French had had a relatively benevolent relationship, or at least not as antagonistic a relationship, with the Native Americans as the British had. Therefore, the uh, Native Americans allied themselves with the French when uh, the fighting broke out in the New World. Thus, the French and Indians are on one side of the French and Indian War. It is essentially a war uh, between the British colonists and uh, the British regular army versus the French colonists and French regular army and the Native Americans. Alright, the French and Indian War costs quite a bit of money. Uh, shipping an army across an ocean and supplying it for months at a time is expensive, not to mention the fact that you have, must train the colonial militias to be able to, uh, to hold their own against them. Um, you will remember that because this costs so much, Great Britain decides to stop turning a blind eye towards the smuggling that's going on and begin to enforce the Navigation Acts. The Navigation Acts are terribly unpopular. Um, people protest. This results in a, a, a need to start uh, beefing up security around the royal governor's office. Um, people are quite unhappy about this. If that's not enough, uh, the British government also issues something called the Stamp Tax. It's, of course, issued under the Stamp Act, and what happens is any paper good must be sold with a, a stamp on it, a, a literal impression on the paper that indicates that you paid for it legally. Now, the Stamp Act was incredibly unpopular, not just because it was a tax on paper, which they'd never had to pay before, um, but also because it affected every aspect of society. If you were a lawyer, you went through lots of paper and you had to pay for it. Even playing cards, however, had to be stamped because they were made of paper, and therefore uh, even people like gamblers were offended by this act. Now, in, from one angle, one can say that it is not unreasonable for Great Britain to have expected some sort of recompense uh, for its defense of its American colonies. However, to the colonists who had lived in uh, North America for generations at this point, they don't feel a very deep and close connection to Great Britain anymore, and they have never before had to pay these taxes, and they see no reason why they should have to pay them now. So many people refuse to pay the tax, uh, the Stamp Act. Uh, they even persecute the agents of the Crown who are supposed to be enforcing the Stamp Act, very often lynching them or tarring and feathering them, um, which was a painful act. It wasn't humorous at all. <clears throat> Ultimately, uh, the British Crown responds by um, putting troops in particularly violent areas, and this is mostly in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, so near Boston. This is where most of the trouble is. Um, other terms you should know, uh, the Boston Massacre, I'm fairly certain all of you remember this, um, the Boston Tea Party. Um, I do expect you to know what the Declaratory Act is. Remember, 
That's where Great Britain essentially has to pass a law saying, "Hey guys, we have the listen, we have the we have the right to pass laws, um, and you have to follow them. So you better listen to what we say." Um, which is pretty much evidence that if one has to pass a law that says you have to listen when laws are passed, um, there's a real problem with discipline. Um, beyond that, um, uh, with regards to Saratoga, remember Saratoga is the battle at which uh, the American Revolution kind of turns itself around. Um, things had not been going well for the Americans thus far. Um, it takes a long time, but they finally win a decisive battle at Saratoga. And this gives uh, other nations, such as France and Spain, the confidence to invest in the American Revolution. Um, this investment by France in particular is quite important because without the French naval support and also its additional troops, um, it seems very unlikely that the uh, revolutionaries would have lost uh, and uh, the American colonies would have remained just that, colonies of Great Britain. Um, please make sure that you understand what I mean by social contract, natural rights, um, and some of the other terms from the Enlightenment. So make sure that you're up on your reading for that. Um, beyond that, um, coercive acts, intolerable acts, remember that's when they pretty much start taxing everything, um, paper, lead, glass, um, also tea was a big one and this leads to the tea party. <clears throat> Okay, let's move on to the French Revolutions, because there are a lot of them. Essentially, the French Revolution can be divided up into really three major categories. There is the Liberal Revolution, the Radical Revolution, and then the more conservative period of the Napoleonic rule. So, let's start off with how did the revolution start? Okay. Um, Louis XIV is where we can kind of go back to. Remember, he is kind of the absolute version of an absolute ruler. Um, he is rather famous for saying, L'État c'est moi, um, the state is me, or I am the state, essentially. Um, he is the embodiment of an absolute ruler, and, and he needs no, uh, or at least believes, he needs no input from a parliament uh, to assist him in his rule. He nearly bankrupts the country by uh, being involved in many, many wars, and also building the extravagant palace of Versailles. His successors don't do much better, um, particularly Louis XVI, who was king during the French Revolution, or at least during the first part, um, because he's dead during the rest. At any rate, Louis XVI is not a particularly good king. His wife, Marie Antoinette, um, is Austrian. She's not beloved by the people. You'll remember her play city um, or her play village where she'd go and pretend to be a peasant. Um, uh, this was terribly, terribly disrespectful, people felt, especially given the, given the economic situation in France prior to the revolution. France had experienced rapid population growth just prior to the revolution, um, and this plus a lack of agricultural development meant that there was perennial famines that would break out uh, in France. Um, just prior to the revolution breaking out, there's also a number of very cold winters, and this also affects food production in France. So we have a lack of food. Well, a lack of food is really only a problem if you have a lack of capital with which to buy it. 
Um, and in France at this point in time, society is really divided up into three major classes. You have the first estate, which is comprised of the clergy, and they own about 10% of France's land, but they only make up about 1% of the population. They're incredibly wealthy, and they are not taxed. Um, the second estate are the nobility, and the nobility is uh, basically comprised of land-rich aristocrats, and they also are not taxed, although they own 35% of France's land and only make up 2% of the population. Therefore, basic, basic math will let you know that the third estate is comprised of 97% of the population, and yet they only control 55% of the land in France. The third estate is comprised not just of peasants, but also of artisans and the bourgeoisie. Please remember what that term means. It means middle class, um, and they are well-educated for the most part, the bourgeoisie. Um, they are familiar with the terms of the Enlightenment, and this is where your movers and shakers of the revolution are going to come from. They're not coming from the second estate or the first estate. They're coming from the third, and they are mostly members of the bourgeoisie. So... In 1789, <clears throat> Louis XVI um, has been trying to deal with the economic crisis that France has been dealing with, but the problem is, is that he doesn't have a tax base. So he makes an attempt to raise taxes against the first and second estate, but they'll, estate, but they'll have none of it. And so he finally calls a meeting of the Estates General. And the Estates General is essentially France's version of Parliament at this point in time. But the king does not have to allow it to come to session. So there has been no Estates General meeting uh, for over 114 years at this point. So once the Estates General all meet, the Third Estates makes uh, the argument that it will always be outvoted by the first and second estate. Therefore, the members of the first, second, and third estate should each have one vote. And as a result of that, the third estate would be able to outvote the second and third estates. Now, this is not something that everybody in the first and second estate agrees with, but there are some fairly progressive thinkers, uh, especially amongst the clergy, who agree with this. And they are willing to unite with the third estate. This makes Louis XVI very nervous. He does not necessarily want his, his power checked. He simply wants to be able to raise taxes. Um, and so in response, he locks the third estate out of their meeting room in the Estates General. And the third estate, fearing that Louis is going to disband the Estates General altogether and even persecute the third estate, decide to have their meeting in a, in a nearby indoor tennis court. At the tennis court, they swear that they will not stop meeting, um, along with various members of the first and second estates, until they have written a new constitution for France. And this is known as the tennis court oath, and this is really sort of the defining moment of the French Revolution, at least the liberal portion. So, take a look at the rest of the terms uh, for the liberal portion of the the, the French Revolution. Um, you do need to know what the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen are. Remember, that's the initial declaration, essentially, of independence authored by the National Assembly. It is, comprised, it is written in 1791, and a gentleman named Maximilien Robespierre is heavily involved in its writing. Um, please make sure that you know who the sans-culottes are. Remember, these are your urban poor, radical members who, um, uh, who believe in the revolution, uh, who wander in Paris and will beat people up if they think that uh, you're not revolutionary enough.
Um, please remember what the Bastille is. Um, we're talking about the Royalist prison um, that is stormed on July 14th, 1789. That is French Independence Day, is Bastille Day. Um, so take a look at that. The Great Fear, of course, is a direct reaction to the storming of the Bastille. Um, peasants fearing the reprisals of nobility will begin to attack the nobility and burn down their chateaus in the countryside. All right, let's move on to the Radical Revolution. Many things happen. Time passes. More constitutions are written. In the National Convention, you have the development of two groups. You have the Girondists and the Jacobins. And they are dealing with a rather complicated issue. The King of France, Louis XVI, along with his wife Marie Antoinette and their children, had been caught attempting to flee France. They had got as far as Varennes, uh, which is just shy of Austrian territory. And once they had gotten to Austria, they would have been safe because Marie's brother, Marie Antoinette's brother, um, was the emperor of Austria. Now, um, the Girondists do not necessarily think that the king ought to be executed for his crimes. Instead, they simply want him to go away, go far, far away, and to never come back. The Jacobins, on the other hand, are the far more radical members of the National Convention, and they believe that the king has committed treason against his country by abandoning it in a time of war. And there, is, can, there can only ever be one punishment for treason, and that is capital punishment, that is execution. And so in 1791... Louis XVI is executed by means of the guillotine, which you will remember was considered to be quite a humane and scientific means to execute someone. Um, it is at this point that the revolution turns very, very scary. Um, there is an emphasis on taking away the nobility's power. Everyone is now referred to as citizen or citizeness. Uh, the French of for the the French for that is citoyen. Um, this is when we start uh, to rework the world, essentially. Um, there's a new calendar system, a new metric system, no more feet, no more miles. We're going to go with kilometers and, and, and rationalize everything. The Committee of Public Safety is initially... Uh, is initially uh, designed to deal with the war in Austria. Um, they are supposed to be able to handle the uh, administration of the war. However, what happens is Maximilien Robespierre, that thinker from, uh, from the very beginning of the French Revolution, um, essentially becomes the power behind the throne, um, and then the power in front of the throne. And he calls for a republic of virtue. And if virtue cannot be achieved by any other means, he says, then it must be achieved by terror. And it is at this point that any enemies to the revolution are executed. The reign of terror lasts approximately one year. It lasts from 1792 until 1793, or just about there. Um, it is a very, very dangerous, dangerous time um, in which about 40,000 people are executed in less than one year. Um, and that is largely just in the towns and cities. We don't know about the outer lying areas. 
Um, eventually, however, the fervor will die down, Robespierre himself will be executed, um, and uh, things will begin to go back to normal, sort of. Um, there is a very weak government called the Directory uh, constructed, and uh, that is absolutely nothing to worry about for Napoleon Bonaparte, who is able to steamroll his way in from the wars in Egypt, uh, declare himself to be consul, then consul for life, and then later he declares himself to be emperor of France. Um, you'll remember that he establishes the continental system, please know that term, um, which is an attempt to essentially starve out Great Britain to be able to invade it um, and incorporate it into uh, the French Empire. Napoleon's greatest mistake is, of course, um, trying to invade Russia. Um, poor choice all around. He lost nearly 90% of his troops. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the Congress of Vienna. The Congress of Vienna is in 1815, and it is the uh, meeting between the heads of state uh, for Austria, Great Britain, Russia, France, uh, and I'm trying to think, uh, no, that's all of them. Russia, it, uh, Russia, Prussia, that's it. No, I'm lying. Excuse me, pardon me. Russia, Austria, Great Britain, and France. It's those four and no one else. Um, at any rate, uh, it is a conservative meeting, and what occurs is um, France is essentially penalized for starting its wars um, and making the rest of Europe deal with it. Um, and because of this, they are going to have to pay a bit of money back to Austria, uh, Russia, and Great Britain. Um, and they will also restore the monarchs that were deposed by Napoleon's rule. So Spain will get their king back. Um, Portugal, Portugal actually becomes a republic, but we won't worry about that right now. Okay, um, let's see here. Other results. Um, please know your alliances. Please be aware for future reference that this is setting up the dominoes for World War One. So we do need to pay attention to that. Okay, let's move on to Haiti. Haiti, of course, is not initially Haiti. It's Saint-Domingue. It's on the island of Hispaniola. The Spanish half of the island is Santo Domingo. The French half is Saint-Domingue. Um, Saint-Domingue is the jewel of the French colonial holdings in the Caribbean. Um, it is uh, the go-to colony for the sugar trade um, uh, in the 18th century. It is fabulously wealthy because of it. Um, however, the form of slavery practiced in Saint-Domingue is particularly brutal. Um, sugar plantations um, involve a lot of crush injuries very often um, because of the need to crush the sugar, uh, sugar cane, and therefore arms would sometimes get caught in gears. It was highly unpleasant. Um, beyond that, machetes themselves could be bad. Um, you have the addition of overseers, overwork, um, and, and people did not live long. Unsurprisingly, then, many slaves did revolt. Um, however, they were very uh, brutally put down, usually, particularly in the case of the Mackendal Revo Revolt in 1750. However, after the French Revolution or has already begun over in France, and uh, information about the revolution is trickling back across the Atlantic, um, many slaves and fugitive slaves known as Maroons begin hearing whispers of liberty, equality, and fraternity, and they decide that this is an opportunity. So a man called Vincent Auge goes across uh, the Atlantic to speak to the new revolutionary government in France in 1791. 
he is a um, <clears throat> a light-skinned uh, former slave. Um, he is actually the son of a plantation owner and is relatively well-educated. Um, he addresses the revolutionary government in France to no avail. Um, he wants them to abolish slavery in Haiti, but France needs money in order to fund its war against uh, Austria, and therefore it is not interested in losing the productions of slave labor. Therefore, Vincent Auge has to go back to Saint-Domingue unsuccessful, and when he gets back home, he decides that he will begin a slave revolt. Now, there are stories that the revolt actually um, begins in Bois-Quémont, uh, which is in the mountains of the northern portion of Saint-Domingue, um, and that it involved a Vaudun ceremony. Um, these are largely uh, either understood to be legends or rumors, but whatever they are, they are formative to the national character of Haiti. This is widely understood to be the moment of creation of the Haitian nation. That rhymed very badly. At any rate, um, Vincent Auge is uh, quickly captured once he starts his slave revolt. Um, he is tried. It's an absolute mockery of a trial. Um, he is tortured publicly, and his head is displayed on a pike in Port-au-Prince. Um, Vincent Auge is kind of the first martyr of the revolution, and he really sparks a lot of other people to get involved, including a man called Toussaint, uh, Toussaint Louverture. And Toussaint Louverture is essentially going to be the leader for the most, uh, the majority of the Haitian Revolution. Um, Toussaint will uh, seek an alliance with uh, the Spanish government in Santo Domingo. Um, he needs weapons in order to fight this war. Um, in order to really have an active slave revolt, he needs weapons. And the problem is, is that the slaves have no access to firearms. Um, the slaves do outnumber the white planters on the island almost uh, 1 to 10. Um, it is a huge disparity in population. Um, so if the slaves could even be poorly armed, they had a real advantage if they could break out of bondage. Um, so at any rate, uh, Toussaint Louverture is the mover and shaker of the Haitian Revolution. Um, uh, most of the island is is set fire to by by this revolutionary movement by 1792. The British do briefly get involved in an attempt to prevent the uh, revolt from spreading any farther. Remember, they still have slave holdings in Jamaica at this point in time, and they are not interested in seeing an active slave revolt. Um, please know who Jean-Jacques Dessalines is. If you're confused, look him up. Um, and the exodus of the planters. There I am referring to uh, what happens to the planter class in Haiti. Where do they go um, as a result of the revolution? Okay, Latin America, and then we're done here. Okay, in terms of the Latin American Revolution, um, you need to know that the Latin American Revolution revolutions are essentially, they are the odd men out of all of these revolutionary movements. Um, the Latin American revolutions are conservative in a way that the others are not. They are not interested in overthrowing um, the social structure. They are not looking for natural rights or talking really about the equality of all men. Um, rather, this is about uh, the fact that Creoles, remember, European uh, people of European descent who are born in Latin America want to essentially have the jobs that Peninsula have available to them. Um, peninsulares, again, are also European uh, Europeans, but they are born in Spain or Portugal, and they are very powerful. <clears throat> 
Okay, in Mexico, the revolution actually starts with um, Father Miguel de Hidalgo. Remember, he issues the Grito de Dolores, his um, call to the people of Dolores to rise up. Um, he is initially drawn to try and and better the lives of his parishioners, who are largely indigenous or mestizo. Um, so he really is actually interested in the lot of the poor. He does want a reform um, in the way that Western Europe is seen, in the way that uh, La uh, France is, is looking at. However, his supporters, who are largely Creoles, eventually will withdraw support from him, and Hidalgo will lose battles because of it, and eventually will be captured by the Spanish colonial forces and executed. Another priest, uh, Jose Maria Morelos, uh, will take his place and will do similar. Uh, will will use similar tactics. He again is executed, um, although. <clears throat> although this only further enrages um, his revolutionary movements. Eventually, um, the Creoles in Mexico will join in to uh, Morelos's, the remnants of Morelos's movement, um, and uh, the Spanish colonial government will be forced to send in uh, Agustin de Iturbide in order to try and put down the revolt. Um, he's a military officer who is also a Creole. Um, the joke was on them, however, because once uh, Iturbide wound up in contact with the revolutionary movement, he simply joined them. Um, they quickly defeat the Spanish forces, and Iturbide will declare himself to be emperor of Mexico. However, he's a pretty nasty guy and is quickly overthrown. Um, also, you should know that uh, Central America uh, had been part of Mexico. It breaks away and forms the United Provinces of Central America. And from there, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras, uh, and Costa Rica will come about. All right. South America. Spanish South America. Um, to the north, the revolutionary movements, and this is largely on the same sort of idea. The Creoles want to take what the Peninsulares have. We're not looking to change the government structure, we're just looking to move up one step on the ladder. Um, Simon Bolivar is an educated Creole elite. Um, he is trained in a lot of military uh, ideas, and he sees himself to be the George Washington of South America. Um, he is responsible for the liberation of uh, Venezuela, um, um, Colombia, Ecuador, and what is now the northern portion of Bolivia. Um, in the southern regions of South America, the leader down there is José de San Martín, um, and the, the revolutionary movement begins near Buenos Aires. Um, the people of Buenos Aires, Porteños, um, are interested in being able to trade with whomever they like, very similar to the American Revolution in this, in this case. Um, because of this, they are, are looking to be able to trade with whomever they want. They don't want Spain to, to um, be pushing them uh, from across the Atlantic. But Spain is distracted at this point. They are distracted by Napoleon. Um, and so the Porteños essentially have their independence even before they have to fight for it. Um, so they form the, uh, the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata. Um, San Martín and Bolívar will eventually meet at the Meeting of the Mines in Guayaquil, Ecuador, and they will uh, 
essentially Bolivar will take the reins of the revolution um, and uh, he is pushing for a fully independent uh, Spanish South America um, one giant country this never happens however uh, he does make an attempt to create a series of uh, democratic republics the democracy movement in Latin America however is quite strong there's not a real interest in giving rights to the lower classes therefore this falls apart quickly. Uh, there's a series of military dictators, and uh, these leaders are known as caudillos. All right, in Brazil, in Brazil we have the weird thing where uh, uh, the Brazilian king <coughs> king is kicked off the throne by the invasion of Napoleon, and he and his entire court, 15,000 people from Lisbon, pick up and move to Rio de Janeiro. So in effect, Brazil becomes Portugal. Brazil doesn't have to fight for increased trading status. It gets it automatically because if Brazil is equal to Portugal, um, then Brazil should be able to trade with whomever it wants. Um, please know who Pedro I is. Uh, know that the abolition of slavery in Brazil was far, far later than it was anywhere else in the Western Hemisphere. All right, study hard, guys. Look at those guided questions. Get some sleep, okay? And I'll see you tomorrow.